Hello, I'm Dale Gentry, and welcome to the Disciple Science Podcast. I'm an ecologist and a professor of biology and a Christian. I find great joy and harmony in my life exploring science, studying birds, and in following Jesus. I started Disciple Science to produce short videos and other resources to show how integrating science with Christian faith can inspire a fuller knowledge of God. I'm glad you're here to join me and occasional guests to explore the intersection of science and Christian faith. Now, let's get on with the podcast. This week, we're sharing the first of a three-part speaking engagement that I gave on the Christian church and scientific thought. My goal is to show how the current model of conflict between science and Christianity has not always been and doesn't necessarily need to be. If you want to see rather than listen to this talk, you can watch it on our partner YouTube channel called Dale Gentry on Science and Faith. I know, it's not very creative. Everything on that channel, like everything we put on the Disciple Science YouTube channel and our website, is completely free thanks to your support. Disciple Science is a nonprofit and we are fully crowdfunded. We cannot continue to do our work, especially the animated videos, without your support. So thanks to everyone for your gifts, especially those of you who give monthly. You can support us and find all our resources at disciplescience.com. Thank you, Dave, for that introduction. Sounds like the mic is working and everything is on. Um, it is a pleasure to be here. As Dave said, this was supposed to go off like everything else was back in the spring and had to be canceled. And uh, I just want to express my gratitude to the committee for having me back. Uh, this is something that I've benefited from. The adult Sunday school class has been something that I just really appreciated over the years and it's an honor to be able to contribute to it myself. So as Dave said, I've been at Northwestern for about 10 years as a professor of, in biology and uh, ecology, environmental science, sort of my specialty. But I teach uh, freshman biology majors and, and everybody else and a bunch of non-majors classes as well. And I've also just been a follower of Jesus my whole life, raised in a wonderful Christian family and been interested in science my whole life. And so I have kind of a, uh, a firsthand account of the unique tensions between science and Christian faith. And I want to um, sort of share with you uh, why I'm interested in this topic, in part uh, just to give you some context for our talk today and, uh, and what we're going to be going through for the next three weeks. So as a professor in biology uh, at a Christian university where we want to encourage students that science and faith can coexist in harmony, even there, I occasionally see students that, that wrestle with this topic, that just don't quite have peace with how to integrate their understanding of God through scripture, with their knowledge of God through what God has created. And it's even worse in society, as you can imagine, in secular society, the tension I think is even more amplified. People struggle with this. And if, as people go searching for answers of how to find uh, understanding between these two, how do, how do they find uh, compatibility, where do they look? Well, Decades ago, they would go to a library, right? But now we, we all go to the internet with our searches. So the most popular search engine in the world, we probably already know. What's that? Google, right? Anybody know what's the second most popular search engine in the world? Wikipedia. Uh, Wikipedia is a good, a, a good guess. That's a, that's a good start. It's actually YouTube. YouTube, which is actually owned by Google, is the second most widely used search engine in the world. So when people go for answers to questions, 
They go to Google and they go to YouTube hoping that someone will explain things to them. And that's why I decided to start Disciple Science. We are a a crowdfunded nonprofit with the express goal of showing people how integrating science with Christian faith is not only compatible, but it can strengthen your faith as we seek knowledge of God through what has been created. And we're doing that through short, entertaining and engaging and intellectually rigorous animated videos. So we're kind of making cartoons for adults on the internet to talk to people about the integration of science and faith. And so that's what I want to share with you um, about today, or some of that will be integrated into our our talk for the next three weeks. So as I mentioned, I was raised in Christian culture and Christian community, but if I was perfectly honest with you, if we went back in time, say 15 years, when I was roughly 30 years old, I had kind of a hard time with these verses that are often shared by many Christians in the sciences, but they didn't make perfect sense to me, okay? Starting with in Romans chapter one, I don't know if you all can read that, but it's uh, in the first chapter of Romans, Paul says that uh, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made. So people are without excuse. He paints a vision that we should look at what God has created and clearly see God in that creation. Uh, Similarly, in the psalm, Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They use no words, they have no voice, yet their, their, their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the end of the world, right? So here we see a poetic account in the Psalms and Paul stating in clear terms that as we encounter God's creation, we should be drawn into our relationship with God. We should, we should see God's you know, eternal power and divine nature. God is glorified through what's been created. The reason those verses didn't make sense to me is because I had lived through personally and was keenly aware of the societal perspective that science and Christian faith actually aren't compatible. If we look at data from the Pew, uh, almost 60% of Americans in 2014 said that science and faith are often in conflict. So this was my lived experience as well. I was raised in a wonderful Christian church in southern Idaho, and through the first 20 years of my life, it was the most important thing in my life. Uh, I went off to university, studied biology, got a degree in zoology, eventually got a master's in biology and a PhD in in wildlife ecology. And through that 10-year transition from roughly year 20 to year 30, my faith became less and less and less important as science became more and more and more prominent in my, in my consciousness and in my awareness. Now, if, if we went through the whole story, it wasn't, it wasn't just science that caused uh, uh, me to wrestle. It wasn't, there were other factors going on in my life. But uh, the, the embracing of science sort of put distance between me and God. And God and my faith went from being the most important thing in my life to, you know, issue number 10 or 20 on my mind on any given day. I wasn't reading my Bible. I wasn't regularly going to church. I didn't abandon my faith. It just wasn't 
lived, it wasn't a lived faith anymore. And so I sort of saw this. I actually believed there was tension between science and Christian faith. And when I hit my 30th birthday, I realized that my life was not going as I had hoped and that maybe that was because I had abandoned the most important thing in my life, which was my relationship with Jesus. So starting almost exactly on my 30th birthday, I'm like, I, I, need, to, I need to put these things back together. But I also knew I, I didn't know how to do that. I had never been told that science was compatible with scripture. I had never had a mentor to guide me through this process of how to make those things fit together. I had never had it presented to me as something that could be done. And so I had to do it on my own and I went into, you know, I just completed grad school, so I was very comfortable with how to dig through books and literature to make sense out of these things. And I now am on the other side of that conflict and I see that my study of God's creation is one of the most important things in my my walk of faith and that I, I do feel that sense of God's eternal power and divine nature. I see God glorified in creation. So I want to try and share some of that with other people and move beyond this paradigm of conflict between science and Christianity. And further, if you ask people that aren't Christians, right, say what prevents you from considering Christianity as a viable explanation for the way the world works, right? Why aren't you following Jesus? The three most prominent answers, the problem of evil, Christian hypocrisy, and I don't think science and faith are compatible. I don't think science and scripture are compatible, right? So if we want to revisit Paul and Romans and and David in the Psalms and talk about creation as a revelation of God, we have not done a good job of sharing with people how that works because Christians and non-Christians alike sense tension and conflict. So what we're gonna do for the next three weeks is try and answer these questions. Has it always been this way? And will it always be this way? Because I want to present a framework so that we can get out of the tension paradigm, move away from the conflict, and find a way that our understanding of the natural world, the physical world, is fully compatible with our understanding of God and the transcendent and the spiritual world. So we're gonna do that in three weeks. The first two weeks, sorry, is this, are we getting feedback? I don't know if I'm, I'm gonna just move this forward and see if that helps. The first two weeks, oh, that make it worse. <laughs> the first two weeks, we're gonna go through history. We're gonna retrace our steps to figure out where things went wrong. And I think that we did sort of have a few situations where things went wrong to try and undo some of the, the, the way we think about science and the way we think about God and the intersection of scripture and knowledge of creation, those sorts of things. So we're gonna retrace our steps through history and then in week three, I'm gonna try, I'm gonna present to you a paradigm for how I think a model of compatibility, not only just sort of compatibility and coexistence at peace, but a, a, a model where science will enhance our faith in Jesus. Well, science will strengthen our conviction that we should dedicate our lives to, to Christianity and to following God, okay? So that's where we're gonna go. Um, in order to go there, I wanna start with this question. Uh, And this is maybe a little bit vague, but uh, I think that how we respond to this question will help us understand some of the tension between science and faith, which is when we go to the natural world, when we engage in what we now call science, or if we went back in time three or 400 years, we'd call it natural philosophy. 
When we engage in this process of seeking understanding from the natural world, what are we looking for, right? What do we expect to learn about God from God's creation? I think the way we answer that question today is quite different from the way we would have answered it uh, 500,000 years ago. And I think that that is maybe at least part of the problem. So let's try and get to this. Let's go back in time a little bit and look at the early church and see how they related God to creation. Uh, starting in the, uh, the early fathers of the Christian church, St. Augustine, arguably one of the most influential Christian thinkers that has really framed modern Christian theology, had this saying, uh, let every good and true Christian understand that whatever truth may be found, it belongs to God. It belongs to the creator. It belongs to the master. We now sort of shorten that and abbreviate it to the idea that all truth is God's truth. So if something is genuinely true, if we have a conviction that it's true, it's true because God made it so. And from this idea, we believe that what we should learn from science should be compatible with what we know of God, right? What we encounter of God through scripture should be compatible with how we encounter God through creation, if God is the creator of all that there is, as we all believe that he is. Uh, Let's move forward 100 years. Basil of of Caesarea, who was a a preacher in sort of Asia Minor and the Turkey area, he was known for preaching sermons where knowledge of plants and animals was just interwoven into everything that he said. This idea that knowledge of God's creation will enhance and strengthen our knowledge of God. So early church fathers compatible. There's very little tension between knowledge of creation and knowledge of God. Let's skip forward a couple hundred years to the period right before the development of science and its more modern form. Um, We would find uh, that the uh, Western Europe and their growing interest in the natural world was seen as perfectly compatible with with knowledge of God. Uh, These quotations come from an academic paper looking at some of the popular books that emerged after the printing press. And what they found is that some of the most popular books in Western Europe and especially in Germany were natural histories that people really wanted to understand, you know, the, the plants and animals and understand nature and that all of that was done through the context of a Christian worldview. They wouldn't consider teaching about fruits without talking about the forbidden fruit that was responsible for temptation of of Adam and Eve and the the harnessing of morality for themselves, seeking the the knowledge of, of good and evil for themselves. And so there was an overwhelming sense that the contemplation of nature would lead to greater piety. And I think that we have lost that sense. I, I can't remember the last time I sat through a sermon in an evangelical church where I was strongly encouraged to go for a walk in nature to connect with God, right? I think there are reasons for that, and we're going to try and again retrace our steps and figure out why we don't talk in these terms anymore. So, um, I want to start, uh, or um, from this point, share with you one of the videos that we made uh, with my disciple science team, hired a couple animators from Northwestern to help make these videos, so I don't get any of the credit for the artwork. I uh, help write some of the scripts, and then we turn them into um, an animated video, and this is uh, 
a video that is intended to teach us this ancient idea that God can be known through scripture and nature. If you want to know God, that is to say, if you want to know the character and ways of God, where would you go for answers? If you're a Christian, you'd likely start with the Bible, and you should. Christians see the Bible as an inspired revelation of the story of redemption through Jesus. Among other things, the Bible offers perspectives about the suffering and evil that pervades the world and what God is doing about it, which reveals some of the traits of God. While we can't fully understand God from our finite human perspective, we can better understand God through studying the Bible. But is that the only place to look? Some will be surprised to hear that the Bible describes another reliable source that reveals the glory, power, and divine nature of God, and you don't need to go to the library or open up a web browser. You only need to go for a hike. The awe and wonder inspired by nature is not a mere curiosity. We're fascinated by the various aspects of science in part because creation testifies to God's glory through its mere existence. Psalm 19 states, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech, they use no words, no sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. We see a similar message in the first chapter of Romans where the Apostle Paul proclaimed, Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. So the Bible itself confirms that scripture is not the only avenue to encounter God, which explains why viewing material creation as a way to know God isn't a new concept. The Belgic Confession, penned in the middle of the 16th century as an attempt to define Reformed theology, introduced the metaphor of two books of Revelation. The two books refer to God's second revelation through the inspiration of the books of scripture we now call the Bible, and the first revelation through God's works, the book of creation. Francis Bacon, one of the founders of the modern scientific method and a Christian, embraced the two books metaphor and encouraged Christians to find God in the book of nature. He was not the only theological or scientific mind to advocate for science as a means to know God. John Calvin, the Protestant reformer, affirmed the study of nature as a source of deeper appreciation of God's wisdom. The brilliant astronomer Johannes Kepler saw the study of nature as a form of worship. He also described the world as the book of nature and the temple of God. Robert Boyle, one of the fathers of modern chemistry, referred to scientists as priests of nature and interpreters of the glory built into God's creation. And Jonathan Edwards, the renowned early American preacher and philosopher, thought and wrote regularly about what creation reveals about God. This approach spawned the field of natural theology, which seeks evidence for the existence and character of God from nature. While there's some agreement that creation can reveal the attributes of God, there's much less agreement on exactly what it communicates. Similar to the Bible, nature can be difficult to understand, even by those that study it. This lack of clarity partially explains why we don't commonly hear this topic discussed in church. But just like we depend on Bible scholars and theologians to interpret scripture, it's partially up to scientifically inclined Christians to illuminate the subtlety of God's glory found in nature. Instead of conforming to the standards of secular science, 
our faith should transform how we see nature as we learn about God through the lens of science. So let's continue our search for the character of God in more than the book of God's word, but also in the book of God's works. Yay, okay, so again, we made that video for, with a couple of uh, purposes in mind. One, to just introduce people to the idea. In my experience, when I was, began my search, when I hit 30, I had never been uh, introduced to this idea that, that, we, that the early church fathers saw God's creation as a revelation of God and encouraged us to search in that direction. And further, to show that this is an old idea. This is an ancient idea. This is not a byproduct of the New Age movement or of some uh, recent attempt to integrate science and faith. It's an old idea. It was introduced, at least the specific two books of God metaphor was introduced in the, in the 16th century in a, a confession that was attempting to define Reformed theology. So what I want to encourage is to rediscover an old idea, not to create a new one. And I think that's an important distinction. This, we're, this is not a, an outpouring of modern science trying to find compatibility. We're trying to rediscover an old view that compatibility is inherent, right? So if we look at that old view that we see from Augustine and Basil and Western Europe in the 15th century, and all of those, both scientists and theologians that said, yes, Christians should search for God and creation, we revisit our modern concept that there's tension and conflict inherent. And so my, 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 my response is just to ask, what went wrong, right? What happened? It's, it's when we, it reminds me of when we um, encounter a, a friend or a, or, a, or a loved one who's going through a divorce, and our, I think our initial response is to say, you, you were so in love, you were so perfect for each other. I thought this was, you know, a match made in heaven. What happened to that compatibility that you once saw that you now feel the need to be separate? And I think that's sort of where we are with science and faith, that we have gone through a messy divorce, and I want to propose a strategy for how to get back together, okay? So the answer to what happened between then, 500 years ago, and now is, well, quite a lot has happened, right? So if we look at the history of, especially Western societies, we see the development of science in its more modern form that we call the scientific revolution. We see the modification of Christianity through the Protestant Reformation, we see the modification of the search for knowledge entirely through what we call the Enlightenment, recent discoveries of uh, you know, the antiquity of the universe and theories around evolution and um, society transforming events like the Scopes Monkey Trial. So a lot has happened. There are pretty good explanations for why what was once joined together has now been separated. And I believe that through studying the history we'll be able to access some sense for how to undo some of our mistakes and move up and create a path forward where there's more compatibility, okay? So let's start with the scientific revolution. The scientific revolution is most associated with this gentleman, a Polish astronomer named Nicholas Copernicus. And he was actually working for the Catholic Church. He was a, he was a, a Christian. And so he was in no way trying to undermine Christian uh, thought. He was just examining the heavens. And when he did, he 
didn't think the dominant framework of the time, which was geocentrism, that the Earth was at the center of the universe and everything was revolving around it, he didn't think it worked. Uh, because the, the models that we had, uh, that had been proposed by an uh, ancient um, uh, astronomer named Ptolemy just weren't coming together. The, the explanation of the sun and the stars were not so bad, but we had discovered at this point most of the planets, I mean, Mars and Mercury and Venus and, and Jupiter and Saturn and whatnot, we knew of those planets. And as we studied those planets, what we found is that as they you know, marched across the sky, if you followed them through the seasons, they would stop and then they would go backwards for a few weeks and then they would go forward again. And they just scratched their heads over that for centuries. Uh, but they were just com committed. Of course, the Earth is at the center of the universe, and so they came up with all sort of, sort of unusual explanations. But Copernicus revived what was actually an old idea that was proposed before Jesus that maybe the sun is at the center of our solar system. And the reason that was contentious, at least, well, there were many reasons. It was sort of contrary to just common sense. It was so plain that the sun's moving over our head. Why would you think that we are revolving around it? So it was contrary to common sense, but it was also appeared to be contrary to some of the teachings from scripture. Because scripture has a few verses that hint at, and sometimes some fairly explicitly point to the idea that the earth is at the center of the universe. And so, this really wasn't a conflict over science versus faith. It was a conflict over how to interpret scripture. Because we now are fairly comfortable with the idea that the authors of scripture had an ancient view of the world and that they did see it through a geocentric framework. And we can look at scripture and be quite comfortable with that now. But at the time, that wasn't necessarily common knowledge or embraced by everybody. So Copernicus started with heliocentrism. It wasn't ultimately embraced until Galileo and Kepler sort of made their twists and, and uh, gave us a clear sense of this. But what this did is it, it converted us from the dominant view beforehand that if you want to seek truth, you need to go through God. God will reveal truth to us. So the search for truth starts with divine revelation. It starts with scripture. It starts with the authorities, the church authorities that sort of, that interpret and reveal scripture to us. So the, the Pope at the time. And what Copernicus did that was so controversial is that he argued that the, it was true that the sun was at the center of our solar system and he didn't go through the church to come to that conclusion. He did it through his observations of the natural world. And so here we see the first hint at tension, where if we have two different bodies arguing for the truth, one from church, one from observation and contemplation of the natural world that we now call science, well, we hope that they're always compatible as Augustine assumed they would be, right? All truth is God's truth. But in this case, there was not agreement that there was broad compatibility, right? Some people thought the Bible is telling us that the earth is at the center of our solar system. The scientists were saying, we think the sun is at the center of our solar system. It was the first time we started butting heads. So the scientific revolution introduced the idea that experience could be a pathway to truth and potential for conflict between what we read in scripture. So if Copernicus is associated with the start of the scientific revolution, when did it end? Most people think that it ended when Isaac Newton published his account of gravity. 
So Newton was famous for a number of things. He was a brilliant astronomer, mathematician, scientist, deeply interested in Christian theology, kind of got off the rails a little bit and had some weird ideas about God, but he was, he was in pursuit of God. In fact, many people criticize Newton later in life for spending too much time thinking and writing about Christianity and not enough time thinking and writing about physics and astronomy and mathematics because he was just a, a passionately in search of an understanding of, of God and the knowledge of God. So again, his, his famous revelation, uh, which is probably somewhat apocryphal, was that he connected the gravity, which we could witness on Earth, right, that if we drop something, it's going to fall to the ground and there's some sort of force attracting objects with mass to the Earth and he said, maybe that same thing that we can easily measure and sort of understand on Earth might also explain the pattern of the planets rotating around the sun. So he took his brilliance in mathematics and took the formulas for gravity on Earth and applied it to the orbits of the planets, and it worked perfectly. Right? So he confirmed this idea, not only that, the, the, that we had a heliocentric solar system, but he provided an explanation through the laws of, of, uh, of energy and, and motion and, and mass. So the, the, the laws of physics were the explanation for how the world worked. What was the explanation for the orbits prior to this point? God did it, right? How, what's pushing the, the Earth or the, the planets on their orbits? God did it. And so Newton saw his explanations, the laws of physics, as created by God and upheld by God. And so he saw them as perfectly compatible with his Christian faith. But when our explanations prior to this were God's responsible for the movement of the planets, to now the law of gravity can explain the movement of planets, we also start to see the first hints of tension because the responsibilities of God for holding together the universe are now being displanted by explanations from science, right? So science is explaining things that were once assigned to God, and what we're going to see is that this paradigm is going to play out in many, many ways. Things that we used to say God did it then get explained by science, and the role for God diminishes, and we see his action less and less in our lives, okay? So through the scientific revolution, as Christians, the Christians at the time said, all right, we are comfortable now that scripture and revelation is a pathway to truth, and science and experience of the natural world is a pathway to truth, and we're going to try and make those things fit together. We're going to understand that God is in those pathways, right? So this is comfortable to some people, but a little bit of tension here and there. At the same time, we need to figure out who gets to define truth, who gets to go out in search of truth. And to understand that, we need to dip into the Protestant Reformation. The Protestant Reformation, most of us have, probably have some sense of most, it's kind of hard to define the end of the Protestant Reformation, but almost everybody agrees it started with Martin Luther, who, uh, according to, to legend, went up and nailed his 95 theses to the door of the church, the uh, Wittenberg Cathedral, and said, you know, he's protesting against the way the, the Pope and the Catholic Church are, are running the show. And he said, I, this, is, this is wrong. And we could go into, you know, we could get some 
uh, Pastor Mark or someone could give us an eloquent ex- explanation about what was wrong, and there was a lot that was wrong, right? And so um, uh, Luther was pushing back against that. And so what we had is a bit of a, of a split, and Christianity in Western Europe ended up in two distinct factions at the end of the Protestant Reformation. One faction that we now call Catholicism retained the belief that we have authority in the church. So we're going to continue to trust the Pope and the leaders of the church to be the pathway to truth and understanding and that they are going to help reveal it to us. And that's going to work well. And then the other half of Christianity ended up where we, most of us, sit today as Protestants. Protestant is rooted in protest, protest against the Catholic Church. So the Protestant view was that we are going to have the authority be Scripture, not the Pope, not the Church. So we're going to say that Scripture is the authority on truth, and that at that same time, so we have to have some historical context for the Protestant Reformation, what was invented in 1440? The printing press, right? So what, would, what was at one time a mostly illiterate society that needed the church to translate the Bible was becoming an increasingly literate society and people had a Bible of their own and could read it for themselves and try and understand what it says. So the Protestant tradition said, we're going to trust the Bible and everybody's going to have access to a Bible. That means everybody is going to contribute to this discussion about what the Bible says and what is true. So we can trace sort of modern American individualism, at least to some degree, back to the Protestant Reformation, that the authority of individuals to search for truth uh, started back with, with Luther. Okay. So the combination of the scientific revolution and the Protestant Reformation, which were just overlapping, happening at the exact same time in roughly the exact same places in Western Europe, uh, created this transition where we went from, before this point, a knowledge of reality starts with divine revelation and its authority comes through the church, to a point now where we say knowledge of reality can start with experience, observation and contemplation of the natural world that we now call science at the time they called it natural philosophy and also just philosophy in general and we're going to um, allow individuals to have some say in that as they interpret scripture so we're trying to integrate the idea of scripture and experience okay this was the perfect conditions maybe unintentionally for the launch of the enlightenment Right? The Enlightenment Project, as some people call it, <coughs> excuse me, the Enlightenment was this period in time that followed the Scientific Revolution and the Protestant Reformation, and both of them were necessary to create the conditions for the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment, again, uh, is kind of hard to, to narrow down and define really uh, concisely, but one approach to it says that it was the conviction that there is universal objective truth and that any rational human that's given all of the relevant information should be able to access that universal objective truth on their own. So to some degree, the Enlightenment was a rejection of the church, of scripture. They said, we don't need scripture to know truth. We can figure out truth for ourselves. And so the Enlightenment 
was the, uh, the first time we see an emergence of sort of a secular class within society. Most estimates prior to the scientific revolution said that Western Europe was somewhere between 95 and 99% Christian, right? So there was just very little descent to Christianity. There was some, but it was uncommon. And for the first time, we start to see a sort of a growing part of society that just says, I don't need church. I don't need God. I don't believe in God. Scripture is not reliable. So we're just going to abandon this church thing altogether. And so for that reason alone, that's a pretty good reason for why some modern people that are aware of history are a little bit hesitant to embrace science, right? Because science paired with individualism led to the idea that let's seek for truth with human reason alone. We don't need scripture. We don't need divine revelation. So that was quite fascinating, right? So we see another split here, starting with emergence of secular society. What did the Christians do in response to the Enlightenment project? Well, the Christians, you know, the, the church uh, broadly has the, the goal of making our faith relevant to our experience of the world. And so if you were living in Western Europe during the period of the Enlightenment, you would have encountered the idea that human reason alone was all we needed to understand truth. Some people have been uh, critical of the Christians to, uh, to not you know, hold to the idea that all authority rests in scripture. But I, I think it's it would be as if today, this summer, a, a Christian church were to ignore the coronavirus or ignore the tensions around racial inequality, right? To ignore what's happening in, to, in society is to abandon the idea that your faith is relevant to your experience of the world. And so most people say it was very uh, rational for the churches to say, all right, if we think human reason can access truth, and we are utterly convinced that Christianity is the truth. Jesus is the Son of God. He did rise. We can put our faith in him. Let's use our reason to explain our faith. So they didn't abandon scripture, but they just said, let's let philosophy and science contribute to our understanding of God through scripture. So they tried to integrate them, okay? So not such a, doesn't sound like a terrible idea. We integrate our understanding of God through scripture with our understanding of God through philosophy and science. And so that's what we're gonna start to see, the emergence of what we now uh, understand as the natural philosophy as kind of a movement. And I introduced it in that video that we watched, right? That natural, natural theology is, sorry, I think I said natural philosophy earlier. Natural theology is the, the search for God in creation, right? So this is meaning we don't go through scripture necessarily. What can we know of God primarily through creation? So seeking evidence for God, not only his existence, but also his attributes, his character, what's God like through what creation is like if God is responsible for creating it. So natural theology, though, this is, uh, and I think this is important, and maybe this is a little bit subtle, it really changed form, right? Natural theology used to be the approach that contemplation of nature could lead to religious transformation. It was it was an emotional connection. It was a spiritual connection. It was, I can encounter God when I go for a walk in the woods, or I can better understand God when I know the plants and animals that those Western Europeans were interested in. And now, instead of, I want to encounter God, it's, I want to prove God. I want to have rational explanations 
for the existence of God. And I think that this is a really important distinction. We changed our exploration of God in the natural world that we you know, see discussed in Romans and Psalms and other passages in scripture that all creation is God's. And we transformed it from a, a, a religious experience to a more intellectual experience, right? That's not inherently wrong, but I think we'll find out as we transition forward through history that that becomes problematic. So transitioning our search from God from a spiritual one to an intellectual one will eventually cause some problems for us. Okay, so we're trying to prove God. So this natural theology project, how are we doing for time here? This natural theology project that uh, emerged here started with Newton. And Newton, uh, through his discoveries of the laws of physics, he started to talk about God as a watchmaker. And a watchmaker seemed like a good analogy a good metaphor because a watchmaker in designing a watch needs to uh, design it with, with uh, intricacy, has beauty in mind. There is every little cog and wheel has a, has a specific purpose. And if you remove one, it's going to kind of fall apart and be uh, uh, non-functional. And so he saw the idea of God as a watchmaker as a, as a brilliant metaphor because when we looked at creation, when they looked at what surrounded them, they saw these laws of physics and somebody would say, well, why are these laws of physics? No idea, right? There's only explanation for these laws being here is because God made them. And we saw the sun and the moon and the stars and their beauty and their, you know, being drawn to them that they seem to have purpose and purposes assigned to them in the first pages of scripture. Right? The only explanation for the complexity and the beauty and the intricacy and just the way that it functions as well as it does was that it must have an intelligent designer. So the view of So I think this is worth just really briefly, uh, um, the Christians, Newton and Boyle and all of these scientists who were followers of Jesus, they wanted to communicate this 